Lots of people say there's no evidence for God. Well, we're going to knock that one out in three. I'm just going to have to keep it simple, throw in the old one-two combo, get in and out real quick, and let you fine folks chat all about it, okay? Punch one I'm going to call the info uppercut. When's the last time you walked into a library and asked, hey, where are all the books that have been written by mindless products of natural laws? The librarian will probably laugh at you and tell you that no such books exist. They don't exist because they can't exist. Why not? Because, first of all, it's just common sense. The words that form the message in books always originate from a person with a brain. Or to say it a bit more scientifically, the message of the book, the purpose, comes to be understood by the orderly placement of the words, design, and information. Ah, information. Now, anytime we find info, these basic laws always apply. Number one, matter doesn't spontaneously produce information. Uh, Number two, only a mental source, intelligence, can generate new creative information. In other words, just like those books that couldn't originate without a mind, neither could life. Why not, you ask? Because we know that DNA contains information. Therefore, the laws of information science apply, which means the information in DNA couldn't have spontaneously generated and that a mind is behind the information. Period. No exceptions. Look at it this way. The simplest life form we know of is an amoeba, and it contains as much information in its DNA as a thousand complete sets of Encyclopedia Britannica. So, are we to believe that there's no way a message in a library book could spontaneously generate, but far more complicated messages in DNA that contain a thousand times more information could have? Not likely. You see, when it comes to life or anything else that contains information, the laws of information science confirm the necessity of a creative mind. And guess what? In the very first book of the Bible, it just happens to mention that. In the beginning, God created. Bam! Uppercut lands on the chin. And now here comes the indefensible head blow. We'll call this the not a big bang bing swing. The KO to the claim that there's no evidence to be out. The law of causality left hook a doom. It goes like this. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. The universe had a beginning, therefore the universe had a cause. Now, either something caused the universe to come into existence, or nothing caused it. Huh. I might not be the smartest guy behind the telescope, but honest, practical, everyday thinking is going to lead me to the former. You have to work pretty hard to conjure up a way that nothing did it. You see, it's pretty improbable, nigh impossible, to account for design, information, and calls if the universe just exploded from nothing. Smack. And while we're on the topic, where did the matter come from that exploded? Are we really to believe that there was nothing and then it exploded and now the exploded nothing is something and we just happen to be smart enough to discover and understand the very laws that prove the opposite, and if the general understanding of the law of cause and effect is true, how can matter come from a lesser cause like nothing? I mean, come on. I don't have a bunch of letters after my name, but even a monkey knows better. And yeah, I snuck in a couple of extra jabs in there, so sue me. Now for some parting words from our sponsor, the Bible. It tells us in Romans 1.20 that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. It also says that people actually know the truth, but they reject it, which explains why even though there's overwhelming evidence that there is a God, evidence won't convince the unwilling. Sad but true. So there you have it. With just a couple of meaningful blows, the claim that there is no evidence for God is down for the count, me amigos. In other words, it's been debunked. Adios. Well, I guess we can go home on that one, right?
You know, one of my favorite things to do is really talk to uh, non-church, non-believers about Jesus. To me, there is nothing more exhilarating, nothing more challenging, nothing more purposeful than to talk to someone about Jesus Christ. Because you see, Jesus is eternal. Jesus actually is what really matters. And so, to me, you know, you talk about wanting to do something eternal in your life. We'll start living out Jesus, start being that witness for Jesus, and you'll have an exhilarating and purposeful life. And, you know, oftentimes when I talk to people, though, they will say something like this. They'll say, I need real proof. Give me real proof that Christianity is true, or give me real proof that Jesus lived, or give me real proof that he resurrected from the dead. The great atheistic philosopher Bertrand Russell, Skip, you can put that picture up, Russell was once asked what he would say if he found himself standing before the God of the universe, and God asked him, Bertrand, why didn't you believe in me? And Russell replied, I would say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. Now, generally, when people give me that answer that there's not enough evidence for God, what they're really, really saying is there's not enough evidence to coerce me out of my indifference or apathy. The great French mathematical genius, Blaise Pascal, he uh, came to Jesus Christ at the age of 31 and became a follower of him. Now listen to what he says very carefully. Jesus willingly will appear openly to those who seek him with all of their heart and to be hidden from those who flee from him with all of their heart. God so regulates the knowledge of himself that he has given indications of himself which are visible to those who seek him and not to those who do not seek him. What Pascal is saying is the evidence for Jesus is there if you have eyes to see. How is your sight this morning? In the letter of 1 John, right out of the chute, 1 John is going to give us irrefutable evidence for Jesus Christ. It's right there in the first verse. Skip, can you put up the first part of chapter 1 and verse 1? He says this, first, uh, the Apostle John. We, that is the apostles, proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning. Now, you want to ask, well, what is the beginning? What beginning is he talking about? And the answer is the beginning. The beginning before there was anything else, except John tells us there was something else. He calls it the one. John tells us a little bit more about the one. Put up again verse one of chapter one in first John skip. Whom we, the apostles, now watch this, have heard, have seen. We saw him with our own eyes, touched him with our own hands, and now watch this. John calls the one the word of life. Now follow this. This is fascinating because in John's gospel about Jesus, he writes this in John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, let's go back really to the beginning, the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, and now suddenly verses 1 through 3 come alive because here's what's written in Genesis chapter 1. Skip, put it up. In the beginning, that's the absolute beginning. Before there was anything else, it says there was 
God, Elohim, plural, right out of the chute, we learn that God is a plurality of persons. Doesn't tell you how many persons, but we know that he's a plurality of persons, and we quickly learn about two of those people. It says this, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the deep. Now watch this, the spirit the Ruach, literally in the Hebrew, the Ruach of God. Can you, he was hovering. He was brooding over the waters. Can you just see that in your mind's eye? And no, don't miss verse three, though. Then Elohim spoke. That's the word. Let there be light, and there was light. Who in the world is this word that has such tremendous power? Well, John doesn't leave us hanging in his gospel because in John chapter 1 and verse 14, he says this. This is Christmas time now. Think three months ahead. He says this in verse 14, and the word became a human being and he made his home among us. That's Christmas. God became a human being and he lived among us and we know him as Jesus. Now look what John says though in 1 John about Jesus, about the word. He said, we, that's the apostles, heard him, we saw him, we touched him. Three verbs, mind-blowing. We saw the living God, we heard the living God, we touched the living God who created everything. Three verbs in the perfect tense. You say, why does that matter? Well, here it goes. John says, I heard him. I heard the word of God. His words were unlike any other words ever. In fact, I recorded them in my book, in my letter, and his words enlivened my soul. Now it's perfect tense, and he's saying 60 years later when he wrote 1 John, his words are still ringing in my ears and enlivening my soul. But he said, I didn't just hear the word. He said, I saw the word. I think John might be referring to the great transfiguration where Jesus was transfigured and he became brighter than the sun itself. And he said 60 years later, that moment, that incident is still in my mind's eye. It's still vivid. But then John says this, I touched him. I touched him. You know the Greek The Greek word means probe. I think he's talking about an event. In fact, I think he's talking about the event. You know what the event is? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. You remember what the word said to Thomas? Thomas, Thomas, come, touch, probe the wounds in my wrist and in my feet. Put your hand, probe the side wound. And see that I am real. Do you think John being there, that made an indelible imprint on his mind? You bet your sweet bippy it did. Sixty years later, that event was driving this man's life. He spent the last 60 years of his life proclaiming that the word Jesus is not only God, but his words are truth. 
And you can be absolutely certain that John believed this. You know why? Because John was there. No, no. John was there. He was there at the foot of the cross. He saw those nails driven into Jesus' hands and feet. He saw that Roman soldier stick that sword into his side and water and blood came pouring out. He saw Jesus taken down from the cross. He saw his cold body laid in that tomb. He saw that huge, massive stone rolled over the mouth of that tomb. But yet, he tells us three days later, he saw the Word. He saw Jesus. He touched him. He probed those wounds of Jesus, and he was no longer afraid. He was no longer afraid. Wouldn't you like to get to the point in your life where you no longer live in fear? Wouldn't that be a great place to be? You know, I want you to understand something. History records that John's faith was severely tested. In fact, in AD 81, Domitian became the emperor of Rome. He soon declared himself to be a god. And when Domitian learned that there was a rival king and God who was to return back to planet Earth, he became paranoid, and he began relentlessly persecuting the Christians unless they would recant their allegiance to Jesus and no longer declare him to be God and king, but instead would burn incense to him, worshiping him and declaring that you, Domitian, in fact, are Lord and God. And when Domitian learned that John, the apostle, one of Jesus' 12 apostles, was still alive, he seized him in the city of Ephesus, had him brought back to Rome. And one day there in the great Roman Colosseum that had just been finished, he put a huge cauldron of boiling oil right there in the middle of the field of the Colosseum. Domitian was intent on making a spectacle of John. He wanted to see John grovel for his life. He wanted to see John beg for his life, proving that the Christian God was weak in comparison to Rome and its power. John came out onto the Colosseum field that day, and he was given a chance, an opportunity, to recant his allegiance to Jesus. John refused to do it. It's reported that Domitian became enraged. He became furious, and he ordered that John be plunged into that cauldron, that vat of boiling oil there in the middle of the Colosseum. Now, we know that water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Peanut oil boils at about 440 degrees Fahrenheit. Olive oil boils at about 375 degrees Fahrenheit. It was reported that John's body was going to be plunged into that vat of olive oil, 375 degrees. Can you imagine that? Can you see yourself there? Now, you've got to ask yourself a question at that moment as you're, as you're just about to be lifted up and, and, and dropped into that boiling oil. You've got to ask yourself a question. One of two things has got to be running through your mind. What in the world am I doing? Why would I die for a lie? I know that Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead. It's been a lie for 60 years of my life. Now's my opportunity. I'm going to recant. I'm going to burn incense to Domitian and say, Domitian, you are my Lord and you are my God. Or John's thinking, I know. I know what I heard. 
I know what I saw. I know what I touched. I probed those wounds. I put my hand in his side. I know that he defeated life. He resurrected from the dead. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, I'm afraid right now. But I need your resurrection power. I need your resurrection grace so I can withstand being dropped in that cauldron of boiling oil. History records that John's body was dropped, plunged into that cauldron of boiling olive oil. John, though, did not respond. He did not react as to how people thought he would. Instead of screaming, instead of struggling to get out, it is reported that instead he began to preach. He began to preach to Domitian and the people, the Romans and the Roman Colosseum, and it is reported that many of them came to faith in Jesus Christ on that day. Now, John was not the only apostle, by the way, who was willing to die a horrible death for Jesus. Listen to what happened to some of the other apostles. Matthew was killed by a sword in Ethiopia. Mark died in Alexandria after being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Peter, he was crucified upside down in Rome. James the Just was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple where he plunged 100 feet to his death. James the Great was beheaded. Bartholomew was flayed alive in Armenia. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Thomas was speared through in India. Jude was killed by arrows. And the apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome. Now, you got to ask yourself, you've got to ask yourself, why would these men one by one went to their horrible deaths for Jesus? Why would they do it? Why would they do it? Why would they willingly forfeit your life? Why would you do it? There's only one rational, there's only one rational explanation, and that's because they saw him resurrected from the dead, and they no longer were living in fear. Wouldn't it be great to get to a place like that in your life and in my life? Do you know if Jesus had not risen from the dead, there would have been a smoking gun. Oh, yeah, there would have been at least one deathbed confession. There would have been one apostle that said, hey, look, this has been a big joke, Domitian. Just kidding. Jesus really didn't resurrect from the dead. I can show you where his dead body is. I'm going to worship you, and I want to go free. Do you know that never happened? That never happened. Not one of them, not one of them ever had a deathbed confession like that. You know why? Because they knew what they saw. They knew what they touched. They knew what they probed. They knew that Jesus was, in fact, alive. You know, out on that field in the Colosseum, a miracle did happen out there. You can read about it yourself. John came out of that cauldron of boiling oil unscathed unscathed. Now that really upset Domitian. He became so enraged, he banished him to the island of Patmos. That's how he ended up on Patmos. You know what happened in Patmos? Skip, put it up. See, God can use something horrible always to create something great. He had the great vision of revelation right there on the island of Patmos. 
So I don't care what your situation is right now. God can use what you think is tremendously difficult and do something tremendously great. Well, after Thomas probed those wounds of Jesus, and he made his great declaration, my Lord and my God, Jesus said these words in John 20, 29. Let this be. Let this be the challenge this morning as we move to communion. You, Thomas, believe because you have seen me. Blessed, blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Are you blessed? Are you blessed? Hi, I'm Jeff Eckstein, one of the pastors here at Bethlehem Community Church. Welcome to our Sunday podcast, coming to you from the town of Bethlehem in upstate New York in the USA. Bethlehem Community Church is an independent, non-denominational, Bible-based evangelical church that includes people with backgrounds from many denominations. We believe that it is only through the love of the Father, the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross, and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can come into a personal relationship with God. We are people truly seeking a deeper intimacy with God and with one another. If you'd like to know more about our church, please visit our website at www.bccdelmar.org. There you'll be able to find our statement of faith, as well as more about the ministry of Bethlehem Community Church. You'll also be able to submit prayer requests as we are called to pray with and for you. We also would love to hear your story and how you found our podcast and where you're listening from. So please visit our website and send us an email. Again, it's bccdelmar.org. That's bccdelmar.org. Thank you for joining us as we continue our pursuit of knowing God and making him known.